So flip to uh, Romans 8 in your Bible. Romans chapter 8, and uh, we're going to finish the chapter today. Romans 8, 18 through 39, and you can follow along. I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray, and we'll get right in. Romans 8, verse 18, calling this message, All Things New. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and thrice holy God, we petition you this day knowing quite well that that you are the sovereign in this relationship. We are subordinates to your glory and your prestige. You have given us your Son, who is everything, who rules over everything. And since we've been given this great gift, the greatest gift, everything else is ours for the taking, or shall we say receiving. We have gathered to magnify you, to celebrate your covenant, and prepare ourselves for battle this week. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So as I mentioned, I'd like to finish out chapter 8 of Romans, and and as you can tell, it's obviously a very large portion of Scripture. Um, When it comes to this particular section of the Bible, which is very dense as it pertains to eschatology, it will be important for us to keep in mind the bigger picture of redemption, the 30,000-foot view of redemption. 
Paul, of course, does not spell out every single detail as though he were a chart-loving dispensationalist whose antichrist theories change every few years depending on book sales. No, Paul, he gives us the tools and he gives us the grand destination. He says, here are the tools, there's where everything's going, get to work, that sort of idea. And from there, of course, we know it's our job to work and keep creation in light of this grand design. So we have a task, we know, to work and keep, and uh, we are to turn Fauquier County into, into um, the garden world that God has always designed it to be. So that's our labor. Now remember that Paul, he, for, for a long time in Romans, he has spent a lot of time uh, tying up loose ends as it concerns the Old Testament era giving way to the New Testament era. Things shifted. There was a change. So he has to sort of spell those things out, of course. Here's Jesus is here. Now what? <laughs> That's the question. So the old wineskins of the old covenant cannot hold the exciting new wine of Christ's kingdom, what we call the new covenant. And, and one of the key features of Paul's explication of the covenantal motif He's tying together the work of Christ with and reaching back to discuss the work of Adam and the work of Abraham. So he's already talked about Abraham and Adam several times in Romans, and there's a reason that he does that. Adam and Abraham are both featured in this letter to the Romans because those men both served as chief instruments in redemptive history. So when you think of who's who in biblical history, Adam stands out because he's at the beginning, and Abraham stands out. Now, that's not to say that they're the only ones who could leave out Moses and David or Ruth and Esther. It's not like those are unimportant people, but he has a theological axe to grind, so he's, he's bringing them up. And for his purposes, Christ, we know, has outshined Adam. He's the second Adam, and he's also Abraham's seed. Remember the, uh, in, in the book of John, I was explaining this to the kids at the dinner table this week, that uh, we had this interesting thing happen in the book of John where um, the religious leaders said, well, Abraham's our father. And, and, and Jesus, not being very nice, said, well, your father is Satan. <laughs> oh, that's a bit, a bit much to take in. And in fact, we know from Galatians that Paul, when, 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 when God promised Abraham a seed, he doesn't mean seed plural. Primarily, he means seed Christ. And then those in Christ are the plural. So Christ is the seed of Abraham. That's, that's the promised son. Isaac carried the wood on his back up onto the mountain, and he was to be sacrificed. And God said, no, I'll provide the, God will provide the sacrifice. And there is a ram in the thicket. And we, remember, we covered this this week. We, there is a ram in the thicket, and ultimately the ram died. But the ram can't take away the sin. Who is the son who had to carry the wood on his back up to the hill? Christ. He's the, true, he's the true Isaac. So there's all these motifs here, and, and Christ himself is the author of this new humanity, pulling out we humans in Adam and bringing us hope and glory. So he's the great-grandson of Abraham who exercised true and obedient faith. Uh, Abraham is exemplified in Scripture as the man of faith. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Jesus is that Abraham who believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Not, not that Christ had sinned and needed it, but nonetheless, that's the, that's the paradigm. So Christ, the second Adam, is the rightful seed of Abraham who blesses the world. 
Christ is the second Adam. He's the rightful seed of Abraham who blesses the world. And remember the, the sands on the seashore comments from Genesis. And God would make Abraham's descendants as numerous as the stars. That's Christ. That's all pointing to Christ and those who are in him. Now, part of the reason Paul has been very careful to mention Abraham is because God's plan to undo the problem of Adam began with Abraham. So the way you read Genesis, this is what you should be thinking. God's answer to human rebellion has always been the establishment of a redeemed family. That was the point. God had flooded the earth. God had established Noah. They had kids. Their kids had kids. And some of those kids got a little naughty, shall we say, and built the Tower of Babel. And then God said, well, enough of that status nonsense and sent them all on their happy way, speaking languages they didn't understand. or They didn't know what each other was saying. So then the very next chapter is chapter 12. Abram, Abram, a pagan man who worshiped false gods. God said, no, you're going to come worship me and then I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make a covenant with you and we're going to change the world. And so that's how we should think about it. God's answer to human rebellion has always, always been a redeemed family, which is partly what makes abortion seem unthinkable, as we'll see later. So Abraham's family was covenanted with and by God, and God would bless them and make their descendants great. By the way, in verse 32 here of Romans, Paul tips his hat to the Abraham-Isaac story. God did not spare his own son. That was part of the test of Abraham. The son I promised you, the son I promised you that would come a year later after I first visited you, what would happen? You're going to go and you need to sacrifice him. Put it all on the line. Let's see if you have the faith. And Abraham raised the knife, he was ready to go, and God said, stop. Why? Because Isaac's not to die, Christ is to die. So the glory that was lost by Adam, the glory of being God's king and priest in the garden world, the glory that was lost was given back to Abraham. But like Adam, Abraham needed a Messiah as well. So Jesus is the one who ultimately gives us the glory back and he establishes it on the earth. So that's sort of what Paul has been arguing here. Uniquely tied to this glory, as we will see, is the worldwide family of God bringing the saving justice and righteousness of God through the Spirit and the law of God to all the nations for the restoration and the renovation of the earth. We are talking about something that's cosmic. We have been given all things, he says here in Romans, for the purpose of making all things new. That's the paradigm. That's the mission of the church, so that's where we're going to spend our time today. Now, looking at your text, in the interest of time, I'm, not going, to, I'm going to go through this kind of quickly and concisely as I can. It's a long passage. We don't have time to get into every single word and spend 10 minutes explaining why this Greek verb is this. We don't have time, so I'm going to do my best here. So here we go. Now, look at the end of chapter uh, 7. Keep in mind the verses that were prior to this section. The Holy Spirit there in... Um, sorry, not, not the chapter 7. The, um, chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness. He's the one who's the subject at the moment. He gives testimony that we're God's children, not just children, we're heirs of Christ. Okay, that's the argument. So when you think of being an heir of Christ, usually we just think, oh, that's, that's nice. It's a nice thought. No, you're heirs with Christ. Christ bought the world, the world's yours. 
So it's not, it doesn't belong to the humanists or the statists or Lord Northam. It doesn't belong to any of them. It's ours, actually, because Christ bought it with his blood. But he also says in verse 17, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the, the road to this inheritance is bumpy. All right, the journey towards the restoration of the cosmos is not without bumps and bruises. Christ is to rule and reign over the entire earth, and we are to share, I repeat, we are to share in that rule and that reign, bringing redemption and healing to places that do not have it. So the reason we're up in arms, well, figuratively and literally at this point, uh, is because people need healing and restoration, and they keep looking at all the wrong places, as if the Virginia Department of Health is going to save us. Nonsense. So all men, women, and children are summoned by the gospel to come to Christ and to be healed. That's the message. All of man's institutions are included in this summoning too, but it won't be easy. So Paul points out a few interesting things here. He says that there is a glory which is to be revealed, which I take here in verse 18 to mean the ultimate glory of resurrection life in the new heavens and new earth this ultimate picture of glory. This is the day of resurrection that was referred to in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the final redemptive move in God's plan. The last enemy to be defeated is what? Death. So that means other enemies are defeated in history before death is abolished. So that's the post-millennial vision right there. All enemies have to be defeated then death is defeated in the resurrection, then comes the end where the mediatorial reign of Christ is handed over to the Father. So again, 1 Corinthians 15, you should um, get to know very, uh, be familiar with it. So the glory, this glory that, that Paul talks about is our share, our sharing in the rule which has, we have in part right now. So we have a part in this um, this sharing of the glory of God and the rule of God right now, but we also know that things aren't fully restored, so we have this already restoration process, not yet fulfilled thing going on. So in other words, you may suffer now, but something far weightier is coming. That's verse 18. Something far weightier is coming. The glory is a humanity which reigns over creation on God's behalf with our older brother Jesus. So too many people, this view of the gospel is truncated. You get saved so that you can just go to heaven. No, you get saved and you get a sword put in your hand and you're said, go fight. That's the gospel picture. You share in the rule. The scepter, Psalm, uh, excuse me, Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. It doesn't depart from Christ's hand. He gave it to Adam. Adam took the, sh the sword and said, well, I don't need this. I'll just partake of the sin too. He could have taken the sword and shoved it into the head of the serpent, taken his wife straight to God and said, kill me, not her. But he didn't. He dropped the sword. He should have fought, but he didn't. So when you come to Christ in the gospel, you are equipped with something to do battle. You don't get to just put it down and await someday that, well, maybe we'll figure it out in heaven. You know, things are bad right now, so let's just keel over, which is what, like, 90 percent of evangelicalism is done yep <laughs> so we have a part in that now the striving and by the way we're working for something larger something global the gospels to go to the nations 
something utterly transformational. So that's the end goal. That's what we're, we're laboring for. So the, the striving for the end goal of the new heavens, new earth, because of suffering, because of difficulties, means that groaning will occur. That's why Paul brings this up three times. There's groaning. There's achiness. There's, um, some call it old man disease, <laughs> where things just break down. They're, your body doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Now, creation, he says, is waiting for the apocalypse. You see that word there? For the revealing in verse 19? It's what we get the word apocalypse. Creation is, hi bud, creation is waiting for the apocalypse of the sons of God, the full revealing of the elect of God. It's like this uh, symbiotic relationship, if you will. We are being um, chosen by God, we're being revealed by God in history, but it's almost like creation is waiting for that grand moment. It's waiting for the unveiling of all of God's people on this new heavens, new earth. So it's almost like on tiptoe, creation is, is waiting, he says. Creation, in verses 20 and 21, was given over to decay by God. It was part of his plan. God cursed the earth after Adam's sin. But it was done so in order for both man and creation to be redeemed. Uh, God could have very well killed Adam and Eve, said, all right, we're done, I'm going to blow up the earth and we'll start over. But that's not God's motive. He doesn't work that way. He wants redemption to take place. He wants his glory to be experienced. And the only way glory is experienced is when you see how inglorious sin is. So glory has to be experienced. So a free people, in other words, is a freed creation. A freed people is a freed creation. A saved people is a saved creation. That's why he's putting these two things together. Paul ties them together and far too many Christians fail to see the connection. And the reason, I mean, you think about this, this is partly why the fabric of the American social order is being torn apart. Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. They just think the goal is to escape, and it's not to escape. So creation is groaning, it's longing for something, and Paul says it's like childbirth. Interesting, um, having gone through that three times, it's, it's always an interesting uh, well, experience, well, shall we say. Uh, and, but Paul likens it to childbirth. He says there's birth pangs. We groan as well. We groan as well. We patiently wait with hope for what we don't see. And the Spirit himself steps in and groans too. That's verses 22 through 25. So think about it. We groan, creation groans, and who is with us in the groaning? The Spirit who groans. There's this achiness, this anticipation, this things aren't exactly the way they should be, but God intends to make it so, and that's where history is headed. So everyone and everything is basically in gestation, pregnant, ready to go, waiting. It's this visual he gives us. So history is a predestinating pregnancy. I'm going to explain that later. History is a predestinating pregnancy. So that's Paul's point, just... Put that slight alliteration in your mind for later. So creation groans on its way to the home birth of a new creation. Thought I'd put that home birth line in there. Creation is on its way to the home birth of a new creation. In Christ, we know that process has already happened. 2 Corinthians 5, if you're in Christ, you're what? A new creation. Okay, We know that that's already something that's, that's taking place. But God, he says in verse 26 and 27, God intends to search hearts 
By the way, this is the only time the Bible speaks in this manner. Usually we have you know, the God of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the God of all the armies, the, all these names of God. Here we have something very unique. He's a heart searcher. He's a heart searcher. God the heart searcher, via the Spirit who groans within us, he intercedes and he prays in and for us, and none of it's with words. That's an incredible thought. The Holy Spirit is in you praying and interceding, and you have no, probably no self-conscious idea that it's taking place. No idea. So in light of this, we find that this pregnancy is ordained by God, by the way. This pregnancy is ordained by God. All things, the suffering, the pain, the Braxton Hicks, and all the heartburn that comes with it, is all for our good, he says, ultimately, in verse 28, because we've been called to God's predestinating purposes. If you, and I'm going to explain predestination more when we get to Romans 9. But if you don't have a doctrine of predestination, you don't have anything that's going to withstand the storms of life. It's going to withstand the humanist propaganda we see around us. If you don't have predestination, you have nothing. You have nothing. So that's why all things work together for good. Why do, how is it possible that all things, including the groaning and the pain and the suffering and the breaking down of our bodies, the emotional trauma, the stress, the status lockdowns, <laughs> abortion on demand, how, do, how is it that all things work? Because God is a predestinating God. So you don't have a category for that if you don't have a predestinating God. So because those, and by the way, we, we ask the question, well, how, why does God work this out the way that he does? Because those whom he foreknew, okay, he knew before anything was made that was made, including knowing you before you were made, kids, God knew you before you were ever in existence. He foreknew, he predestined then for final conformity into the image of Christ Jesus, verse 29. So he was the firstborn raised from the dead, and he gave us the first fruits of the Spirit mentioned earlier. So as such, he's our older brother. Now, those, those who were predestined to be sons of God and brothers of Christ were also called, he says here, were also called with an effectual call that cannot be ignored. When God calls you, he doesn't, um, you, you don't fail to pick up. <laughs> you, that is not, it's not a thing. So people have this idea of, well, God calls, and I, oh, you, I just ignore him because I don't, you can't, you, that's not a thing. <laughs> you can't ignore God. So they were predestined, they were called, and they were also justified, he says, declared right in the courtroom of God by faith alone. And then those who were justified, of course, he says, were also glorified, which is in the past tense, by the way. And there's a reason for that. Let me explain. Paul does this on purpose. Uh, it's past tense on purpose in order to round out this great, we call it the great chain of salvation. Those whom we foreknew, he called, those he called, he, he justified, those justified. Um, you, that's the chain of salvation, verse 31. And the reason, I think Paul's being very intentional here. Why is glorified in the past tense? The very end. Because if he's talking about future glory, why is it in the past tense? Here's what I think. We like to think of things in a linear way because, well, we're linear creatures. At some point, we started out with a self-consciousness. We didn't have self-consciousness before self-consciousness, so we didn't know. 
But even the end goal of glorification, even the end goal of the transformation of the entire created order was something that came from the predestinating mind of God before all things. I remember as a kid playing under the pews in our church, with little cars, being quiet, still listening. And my pastor had made a comment, and then I was friends with the pastor's son, and I said, isn't that mind-blowing? Because he said, did you know that God never started to exist? He never had that experience. He never had the experience of not existing and then existing. He's just always existed throughout all of time. Think about that later. You can spend the rest of your Sunday pondering that. As a kid, I just mind-blowing. I, I, I don't understand. How is that the thing? Well, in the mind of God, inexhaustible mind of God, He's just always existed. So, it's interesting. In Romans 8.1, the passage started out with there being no condemnation. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But now it ends with this um, call that there's no possible way for condemnation to ever occur. The pregnancy is sure. The pregnancy is secure. Paul invokes the how much more argument. He says, what shall we say about these things? What shall we say about these things? These new creation, sons of glory, transformed earth and people things. What shall we say about it? If God the Lord, verse 31, if, if God the Lord of all is for us, what possible enemy could be curated and crafted to undermine this grand pregnancy? What possible enemy? If God's going to see to it, who can undo it? No one, he says. Why? He says in verse 32, remember he's alluding to the Abraham Isaac story. God didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. If he gave up his own son as the creator and the sustainer of every proton, neutron, and electron, how will he not also give us all things? Verse 32. So think, think of it this way. He gave us Christ, which means he gave us everything. And if he gave us everything, why not everything else? So the world belongs to us, the meek people of God. That's what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? Heaven? The earth. The, the soil. The land. The trees. So who shall bring a charge, verse 33, against us, when God is the judge who has already declared us not guilty? If the blood of Christ has atoned for your sin and it covers you, who can possibly accuse you of anything? It's God who justifies. God justifies, not the state, not your friends, no one else. No pastor, priest, pope. God justifies. Who is to condemn us, he says in verse 34. Interesting question. Who could possibly condemn you? Well, Christ was condemned for us. You can't condemn me. Christ was condemned. And not only condemned, he was raised. He was enthroned. He intercedes. Verse 34. Who can separate us from the love of Christ our King? Nobody. But, but what if someone or something tries to take the love of Christ from us? He says, well, let's bring him out. Let's have a look. Let's have a look-see. Who can possibly take a, the love of Christ from us? Shall tribulation? <laughs> no, it's for our good. What about uh, distress? It's an opportunity for hope. Well, what about persecution? 
No one can take our lives. They belong to Christ. What about famine? Christ is our bread. We don't live by, by, by bread alone. What about nakedness? We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. What, what about danger or sword? Christ, our intercessor, is indefatigable. You can't exhaust him. And there's a quote there in verse 36 from Psalm 44, 22. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He, he brings this passage up to prove the point that life may entail some level of suffering, but it is no matter, for we are a whole lot more than conquerors. We are a whole lot more than conquerors, and that's because of the love of Christ, verse 37. Think about this. You're in the Roman world, and if you were like the cream of the crop, you were a conqueror for Rome. You were a conqueror. You went and you conquered the world all in the name of Caesar, and, and everybody is to bow and worship Caesar. He says, you're, not, you're more than that. You're more than that. These guys are, these guys are playing games. Lord Northam and the health department, they're playing games. They're all playing games. They're not conquerors. We're, we're more than that. We're more than that. And if that's the case, and it really is true that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, then what, it, what is it? What can take us? Can life or death, he says? No. What about angels? What about despotic rulers who have, have assassinated and killed millions of Christians and still do today? What about them? No. Nothing today, nothing tomorrow. No president today, no president tomorrow. No height, no, no depth. No, no other geometrical configuration that you can come up with on this earth in all of creation. Nothing can separate us. Nothing can disfigure us. Nothing can malign us or poison us or dismember us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Amen. So we are untouchables, my friend. We are the untouchables. What is it that overcomes the world? We, we know in John, 1 John 5, 4, our faith. Can someone take your faith? No. No one. So let's figure out a way to maybe pull, pull these out. What should we be thinking about? The, que the question we need to ask is this. Did God... Listen to this question carefully because it, 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 this may fatigue you. <laughs> Did God curse and sanction the earth in such a way as to make sure that the curse prevailed in history? Did God curse and sanction the earth? We're talking about the earth here, the creation groaning. Did God, when God um, exiled Adam and sent Adam and Eve out, and he cursed the, and he cursed the, um, the ground, the, the idea of thorns and thistles and so on and difficult work, did God do that in such a way as to make sure that it prevailed in history? That's why I'm post-millennial. <laughs> the key word being prevailed. Or does God want the gospel to supplant the curse? To roll back the entropy of creation, the, the, the breaking down of creation. Does the gospel want to undo that? Is grace more potent than sin? What wins in history, blessing or cursing? See, depending on our answers to these questions, we may feel inclined to ignore this aspect of the kingdom of God. If you think that sin and the defamation of the glory of God in the world is ultimately going to win out, 
or if there's simply going to be an irresolvable stalemate at the end of history, then you might be prone to cease all gospel preaching, except maybe in the comfort of your church building where you're just preaching the gospel. Depending on your answer to those questions that I asked, those things will be affected. You might even say, depending on your eschatology and your view of the future, will determine what you do today. See, if the resurrection of Christ is merely a sentimental memory that's couched inside the collective consciousness of your average American Christian, then of course the world's going to suffer. If that's all it is, oh yeah, Christ died, yeah, it was, it was great, we, we celebrated that this Easter. Oh, actually we didn't, we closed down. We didn't even do that. Oh, yeah. So if, it's, if that's all it is, the world will suffer. And ultimately, you will suffer too. It's not as though God's not going to hold you accountable. See, but, but if the resurrection and the subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which remember, the Holy Spirit gives us what? Adoption and glory and everything else he's just talked about in Romans 8. If the resurrection and the subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit is turned loose on the world, a redeeming force that transforms and renews and renovates all things, bringing them to the throne of God, then everything must be filtered through that, if that is true. See, one of our, one of our great struggles today is this abject failure at believing what the Bible actually says. <laughs> Too many Christians want to believe things that they think the Bible says and not what the Bible actually says. This text, I think if it's properly exegeted, properly understood, I think it's a full-blown admission of the victory of, of Christ in history. You can't read Romans 8 and think things are going to get worse and it's all going to go in the trash heap of history. You just can't. He, he said, what can separate us? What is going to stop this massive train of victory in history? Nothing. Nothing. Not a Caesar, not a Pharaoh. Not a statist despot. Nobody can stop it. See, think about what's being said here. The glory Adam lost is now given back to this new humanity thanks to the Messiah. So, so creation groans and waits, and we groan and wait, and the Spirit groans and waits in us while we groan and wait. For what, though? To what end? Here's the end. Total, comprehensive, global redemption. That's what the waiting's for. And on top of that, we have this unadulterated truth of God's predestinating power to make all things new. Predestined, called, justified, and glorified. A guaranteed promise from start to finish from the infinite mind of God, signed and sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit because of the work of Christ. You can't touch it. And to make sure that we understand just how immovable, just how fixed this promise is, Paul drags out any and all enemies and threats, and he parades them in front of us and says, none of them can sever the bond of the promises of God. Not, not death, not life, not this pagan ruler, not any of these things. Keep them coming, keep them coming. Can any of them, any of them, give us what you have, world. What do you have that can stop this victory of the gospel? Nothing. Not one. And to top things off, God gave us Christ His Son. And if that's true, if He gave us Christ His Son, 
then it follows that everything that Christ has purchased is ours too. And guess what? What did Christ purchase? Did he purchase just a few plots of land, maybe a nice beach house, and a few people? No. He purchased the entire world. He bought the nations with his blood, and he expects those nations to bow down before him. Christ bought the world and everything in the world with his blood. Remember, far as the curse is found, and nothing can tamper with it, nothing can be taken from you. That's a seal that you can't break. That's a bond that you cannot dissolve. It's a done deal. So history, I mentioned this earlier, history is a predestinating pregnancy. Okay? So it's not like history is this full of things and oopsie-daisies and all oh, that happened, and God really sorry about that event that happened because he didn't know. He didn't know that, um, you know, things were going to get bad in America in 2020. <laughs> he, he, God, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. It's a predestinating pregnancy. And I'm using the language of pregnancy here because of what he says here in Romans chapter 8. We have this groaning, these birth pangs. Now, the old covenant was the conception. The old covenant was the conception. The new covenant was the beginning of the delivery. Christ was the firstborn, right? He was the firstborn. And every person who has named the name of Christ, who has been chosen before the foundations of the world, is now being birthed into this new birth, into the new covenant administration. It's no secret. Why does Paul bring up birth pangs? Same reason Jesus brought up with Nicodemus about being born again. The new covenant administration was going to be a change in operation. God was going to infiltrate people with his spirit. He was going to bring them a new birth. They're going to be birthed into a new world that he bought and paid for. That's the process. So now we are birthed into this world. Those, we are people who are equipped with everything that we need to do battle. Right, Everything you need for life and godliness. Everything you need is in the word. You have it. You have the spirit in you, a bloody cross, an empty tomb. You have his word. Do you need something else? And if you do, you're going to be waiting here in line when you should be getting to work. You don't need anything else. So the scope of the resurrection and the ascension of Christ is cosmic and it's forever. When Christ was risen from a tomb in the Middle East... That was, that was a global thing, that was a cosmic thing, and it was an eternal thing. So Christ, he was not enthroned so he could sit there and worry about the state of affairs in the world. Oh no, maybe I shouldn't have left. Maybe I should go back and zap them all the way. Maybe, I, maybe I, I don't know what I should do. What do you think, Father? Oh, just hang tight, we'll figure it out. No, that's not what the Trinity is doing right now. No, he was enthroned so that he could govern the affairs of the world. So history, then, is not the birthing of a state who tries to govern the affairs of the world. It's the birthing of a new people ruling and reigning with Christ with an eye towards global transformation. So God heals people, and guess what he does? He heals nations. That's the paradigm. That's the message. So if what Paul says here about the people of God predestined for glory on earth as it is in heaven, if he says that nothing can defeat or suspend the gospel of the kingdom, then look no further. We have here a post-millennial text, one that changes everything. And next to 1 Corinthians 15, 
Romans 8 is one of the favorites. See, what God has done in Christ is He's given birth to a new cosmos, a renewed creation. And it's not done yet. We know we have work to do. Abortion must be abolished. Speaking of abortion, follow me here. It's interesting that Paul uses the analogy of pregnancy. If history is a predestinating pregnancy issued by God, and I'm arguing that that it is, then men who try to usurp history by deploying their own predestinating power, they're abortionists. Okay? Predestination of God in history, giving birth to new people, renewed cosmos, renewed nations, abortionists who want to stop by their own predestinating power the growth of that pregnancy of of those births. Does that make sense? They want to stop the birth of a new creation, so they deploy their socialistic controls in order to elevate the state to a position of supremacy. So listen, the reason people with an insatiable lust to kill babies do what they do is because it is part of their larger plan to abort the work of God in the world. Their problem isn't that they find children to be an inconvenience, though that sometimes is true in most cases. Their problem is they hate God and they hate His predestination. They ultimately want to abort the work of God. They want to assassinate the work of God in history and anything that bears the fruit of God. And what, could, what is one of the most vulnerable, beautiful things that represents the fruit of God in history but a child? They want to undo the pregnancy of the Spirit's liberating work of renewal and transformation. The fruitfulness of God's creation is a stench to them, and the only way to clear the stench is to tear the limbs, and, tear the limbs with forceps and syringes. It's the only way. This is also why they run to the nanny state to protect their bloodlust. They want to be ruled by anyone but God. Anyone but God which is why today humanist religion is the de facto religion. So when you talk about masks and vaccines, you know what you get to say? Don't you push your religion on others. You want to abort the work of God in history and then start sharing the gospel. They want more statism, which is all to say that we've been given this tremendous task. We've also been given everything we need for the task, protections included. We don't need to pray for safety ultimately because Christ is our safety. If nothing can separate us, why presuppose that something could? If nothing can separate us from from the love of God in Christ Jesus to you, why presuppose that something could? Why cower in fear? You're presupposing that something can take that. It can't. That's not assurance. It's unbelief. And, And frankly, it's unbelief that's killing the Christian church. So Paul says in Romans, as we wrap this up here, that that the saving justice and peace of God has been revealed in the gospel of Jesus the Messiah. The Spirit is dwelling in us just like He dwelt in the temple. And part of the purpose of the Spirit's indwelling in us is to do something, to conform us to the image of God's Son. We are image bearers. We are temples. As we go into the world discipling and teaching nations what to do, teaching sheriffs and county supervisors and governors and leaders, as we do that, we are people who have the faith of Abraham. We declare that Jesus is the world's true Lord. 
We declare that he's in the process of cleaning up the place and every man, woman, and child is to pick up after themselves and come to Christ. So we summon people to flee Egypt, to run from Egypt, to enjoy the peace and promise of God's kindly rule, unless there be any bit of confusion. We do so knowing that this world is our home. God intends to transform this world. And he intends for you to join him in the building project. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now as people who are grateful for the work of your Son, grateful for the work of your Spirit in us. And, and, and Father, we know that there is a whole lot to do. There is a whole lot to do. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our families, that our children would grow to be like David, who didn't cower at Goliath's size, but said, man, how could I possibly miss this? May they see the enemies of Christ as being defeated enemies in history. May we see that to be the case as well, because it is true. It is true that nothing can sever the bond that you've given us in Christ. You have given us your spirit to seal that bond. So, Father, I pray that you would, as the psalmist writes, prep our hands for war. Not with the insatiable bloodlust of, of revenge and, and tit-for-tat nonsense that we see going on in the world but for the war of the gospel. May your spirit transform us. May, it, may he transform our counties and ultimately this nation and all nations. So Father, we know that for us, I mean, ultimately we are a blip on the radar of history, but we're here today and we are here asking you to send us. So will you use us? Father, we know that's a dangerous prayer. <laughs> it's a dangerous prayer but we ask for your grace to be with us as we go. In Christ's name, amen.